Hello, and welcome to Further Up and Further In, a podcast. This is now episode 30 of the podcast, in which we will discuss chapter 8 of Prince Caspian, titled How They Left the Island. And as the title indicates, this will be the chapter where we discover that Trumpkin is the one who has been narrating this backstory. And Trumpkin, along with the Pevensey children, at the end of this chapter will leave and begin making their way back to uh, Prince Caspian at Aslan's Howe at the stone table where uh, the battle has been raging and where they have been summoned by the blowing of Susan's horn by Caspian. So the opening line of the chapter uh, brings all of the previous chapters back to the beginning where uh, Caspian's backstory with Dr. Cornelius and his escape from Miraz and meeting Truffle Hunter and Nickabrick and um, all of those things have been recounted by Trumpkin to the children in the ruins of Caerperavel. And so we are now back to the beginning of the story when they first encountered Trumpkin. And the plot advances uh, for Lewis with the five of them banding together to go aid in the battle uh, of Caspian and his forces against Miraz and his. And uh, just a reminder of where we left off with Trumpkin, because we're going to see some of his character develop in this chapter that uh, the end of chapter seven sees him leaving Caspian on mission to go to Caerperavel to see the help that the horn has summoned. And of course, they're imagining that the great kings and queens of old, uh, the great high king Peter and his siblings from the golden age of Narnia will return. They, It's possible, and um, Devin Brown talks about this in his commentary on Narnia, that it's possible that they were imagining the kings and queens of Narnia as they were. Because um, remember, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy had grown old in Narnia. They had grown into their adulthood and reigned over a golden age. And so perhaps they believe this horn will summon them as warriors. And of course, we know that they have been summoned as children, one year older than the last time they were in Narnia. But right before Trumpkin leaves to head toward Caerperavel, he tells Prince Caspian um, a very revealing statement. He offers to go, and Caspian asks, I thought you didn't believe in the horn. And Trumpkin's statement in response, no more I do, your majesty, but what's that got to do with it? I might as well die on a wild goose chase as die here. You are my king. I know the difference between giving advice and taking orders. You've had my advice, and now it's the time for orders. And recalling that statement from Trumpkin is helpful because in this chapter, we'll see him continue to understand, uh, advance his understanding of obedience and duty and authority that... Uh, so much of what Lewis's project in this novel is, is an understanding of authority, all the way down to the medieval structure of the novel, where there's this emphasis on medieval hierarchies and princes and, and usurpers and castles. And um, there seems to be this air of chivalry and honor and nobility at the very core of this particular book in the Narniad. And uh, through Trumpkin's perspective, I believe the reader is able to see how an acknowledgement of authority and obedience to authority is something that can be clung to with firm conviction, but also something that can be developed through uh, trial and through error. And so the, the noble declaration he ends chapter seven with, you are my king, I know the difference between giving advice and taking orders, will be tested in chapter eight 
where he rec- he comes to the realization that the horn has summoned four children and his uh, hesitance and his concern is vocalized in the chapter and it's through a series of uh, contests with the children and we'll see those in a moment where he will sword fight with Edmund and he will uh, take part in in an archery contest with Susan and then ultimately he'll experience healing through Lucy and her cordial and I believe that healing is of a spiritual kind as well and we'll talk about that but through these contests where where Trumpkin is um, humbled three times over we see in Trumpkin and hopefully by extension in ourselves, the consistent need we have for humility and for grace and to learn authority through um, through trust, but also through experience. Uh, and this will show up later in the novel when, when Lucy sees Aslan and tries to convince her siblings and they don't believe it. Where This is a return back to the first book where She's trying to convince everybody of Narnia in the wardrobe, and Peter and Susan have a difficult time believing her. Uh, here again, Lucy um, seeks to uh, to explain to everyone that she has seen Aslan, and because they haven't seen him, they have a hard time believing him. That recognizing the necessity of trust and of authority and of obedience to the high calling is a, a major facet of the novel. And so Caspian and company are at the stone table. Trumpkin has gone to Care Paravel. Pattertwig has gone to Lantern Waste. And we come to chapter eight, how they left the island with the story coming full circle. And Trumpkin describes the horn that Caspian blew with this rather compelling description. I want to read it aloud. He says at the end of the opening paragraph, he says, I'd been plugging away for many hours when there came a sound that I'd never heard the like of in my born days. Hey, I won't forget that. The whole air was full of it, loud as thunder, but far longer, cool and sweet as music over water, but strong enough to shake the woods. And this description's really beautiful. There's a description of the horn being blown in the first book when Susan blows it for help um, and Peter fights his first battle against Maugram. Here, though, uh, Trumpkin gives a, a rather extraordinary description of the, the sound of the horn, that the whole air was full of it, loud as thunder, but far longer, cool and sweet as music over water, but strong enough to shake the woods. And I think internalizing this description of the horn and allowing it to register with us and and work its magic on us such a compelling and lovely description and then being reminded of what it is a description of this is a description of the horn of help this is the music of salvation the sound of crying out for help in the midst of desperate battle that this horn is no mere plot device it's it is the the gift to susan from father christmas it is the horn that magically summons help when needed, when at its most needed. And I think theologically, just thinking of Caspian's salvation physically in battle by blowing the horn that summons this supernatural aid, um, this prophesied sort of uh, assistance, I think that is a helpful analog to our own 
um, crying out for help, that when we are at our most desperate, which comes when we recognize our sinful state. Uh, I think of Luke 15 with the parable of the prodigal son, that there's the moment when he has uh, sold himself to the far country and he has hired himself out um, and he finds himself longing for the food that the pigs eat, which is quite a denigration for a Jew. Uh, that it would be it would be degrading enough for him to long to eat the pigs. But in the parable that Jesus tells, he doesn't long to eat the pigs. He longs to eat that which the pigs eat, which is a a, a more intense um, and more impoverished state of of a degradation. It's in that moment that Luke says he came to himself and realized what he was and who he was and what he'd become. And at that point, his attentions turned to his father and he is first turned and reoriented back home. And that, I, I believe the model of redemption in that parable, it requires a recognition of one's state, that we all must come to ourselves. We all must realize what we are and who we are. And I think the horn in this novel and the need to blow it for help when you are at your most desperate or when the hour is most grim and help will come. I think it's such a fitting image for um, how beautiful salvation is, that when we recognize how desperate and how dire our situation is, and we cry out for supernatural uh, aid, uh, aid is a small word, supernatural life, that we are dead and need resurrection. Um, perhaps that prayer that we send upward for salvation and for healing is a sound that the whole air is full of, loud as thunder, but far longer, cool and sweet as music over water, but strong enough to shake the woods. It's a, a powerful uh, and compelling picture, I think, from Lewis on what the horn of help uh, might sound like physically, but also spiritually. Edmund asks what time it was that the horn was blown. Trumpkin says between nine and 10 o'clock. And all the children reply, but that's just when we were at the railway, sta railway station, which is a curious detail from Lewis, because if you'll recall, the time frame between London and Narnia is overwhelmingly um, asynchronous. It's, it's, they're not synced together. That a year in London is a thousand years in Narnia. And uh, Lucy is gone in the wardrobe to Tumnus's party for hours, and she comes back and no time has passed at all in London. And so it's a rather curious inclusion here from Lewis that the time when the horn was blown matters to the time when the children were on the railway station, because by the mythology of Narnia, there's no reason it should be interesting that those times sync or that they should synchronize at all. Uh, but here in this moment, uh, the children are amazed that it, that it does. They were, they were dragged into Narnia at the exact hour in Narnia that the horn was blown. Um, rather interesting, but uh, Trumpkin, is as I mentioned at the, at the top of the, uh, the episode, Trumpkin is laboring to uh, to respectfully indicate his concerns about arriving at Care Paravel and seeing children. Uh, he wants to be respectful. He he's a he's a noble dwarf, 
uh, yet it comes out that um, that he had been imagining adults. Um, prior to that, though, I want to I want to take a sidestep and, and mention something about um, the the children's reactions to the horn before we get to uh, Trumpkin's misconceptions about what he finds of the nature of the help that comes. Um, Peter responds, he sort of unravels the nature of the horn being blown with Susan's horn. He says, great Scott, said Peter. So it was the horn, your own horn, Sue, that dragged us all off that seat on the platform yesterday morning. I can hardly believe it, yet it all fits in. And that's one of those statements from Lewis that on a first read, you could just throw out and keep reading. But it really warrants some some contemplation. I can hardly believe it, yet it all fits in. Uh, This is a beautiful statement, I think, on the nature of sovereignty, the nature of Aslan's sovereignty, that Aslan is is providentially overseeing and presiding over all things. Um, I think in The Horse and His Boy, it's mentioned that Aslan is at the back of all the stories, Uh, that Aslan is this, um, he's he's not a tame lion, uh, he is wild, and yet he is constantly um, w- at work in the events of of the Narnia stories. And so there seems to be this sense of sovereignty that is inexplicable from our end, yet mysteriously and supernaturally and beautifully coherent and cohesive. And this is the sort of thing that Paul registers in the New Testament, that um, there are mysteries at work that cannot be articulated, that the glories of Christ cannot be fathomed, that they cannot be measured. And yet the instruction from Paul is constantly that we might know Christ, uh, that we might know that which is unknowable, that we might fathom the unfathomable, that, that the the difficulty for the Christian is knowing that the abundance of Christ and the glory of Christ is an eternal and um, weighty glory that we will never be able to comprehend entirely this side of his presence. Paul says, now we see through a glass darkly, uh, that we see Christ through a glass darkly. We see the truth through a glass darkly, but then we will see face to face. And so Peter says, uh, that he can't believe it. I can hardly believe it, but it all fits. It's all true. And I think this is a beautiful statement of the gospel. This is a beautiful statement of the truth of the glory of God, that I can't believe it. It's so, it's an exposure to that sort of majesty is incredible. Yet it all fits that there's a beautiful harmony to the Old and New Testament. There's a beautiful harmony to the words and uh, actions of Christ. There's a beautiful harmony to church history that is inexplicable. It's it's unable to be articulated or explained, and yet it all fits. It's all true. And there's a deeper means of knowing that beyond our rational capacity to put the pieces together. And I think uh, Lucy's response, I believe it's Lucy, yeah, who responds to Peter in that statement, he says, I can hardly believe it, yet it all fits in. And she says, I don't know why you shouldn't believe it if you believe in magic at all. And that's a conviction. That is a convicting statement to, of Lucy's to us, that 
the only reason we find the work of Christ extraordinary or inexplicable is the moments when we don't believe in his power and in his sovereignty. That uh, There's a great example of this in Acts chapter 3, where Peter and John heal the lame man at the gate of the temple. And it says everyone around had crowded, had crowded around in astonishment and awe and wonder at what had happened. And Peter rebukes them and says, why do you wonder at us as though by our name or by our piety, our works, we heal this man? If you believe in the name of Jesus, if you believe in God and his miraculous and perfect sovereignty over all things, then why are we astonished at anything? That the healings and the miracles that are measured out in our daily circumstances, we need to trust that God is able and willing to do whatever he chooses. There's a beautiful providence to this. And Lucy says, I don't know why you shouldn't believe it if you believe in magic at all. If you believe in the deeper magic, to use Lewis's phrase, if you believe in the deeper magic, then everything, everything is possible insofar as it is wrapped up in the beauty of God's will. Everything is believable. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Trust and obey. And this is furthered. Uh, they're discussing how they were pulled away from the railway station by the horns blowing. And Edmund says, and now we know what it feels like for the djinn, for the genie that's summoned by the bearer of the lamp. Golly, it's a bit uncomfortable to know that we can be whistled for like that. And so he's uh, focusing on the irritation of it, that we can be whistled for, that we can be summoned magically um, without our consent, right? It's a bit uncomfortable, he says. And again, Lucy, with the convicting response, she says, but we want to be here, don't we? Said Lucy, if Aslan wants us. And so I think in this exchange between Peter and Lucy and between Edmund and Lucy really invites the reader to explore these deeper implications about the sovereignty of God and the desire and the salvation of men. Um, Peter's concern is the incredulity of the thing, that it's inexplicable that the magic of the horn and the summoning of us into this grand world is inexplicable. What do we do with the fact that we can't reasonably, um, scientifically and mathematically lock down the workings of God? What's the implication of that? And Lucy says the implication of that is that the belief requires magic. It requires faith. It requires the faith that God gives, that we trust God with the faith that God has worked into us. That's, that's what we would not have called Aslan if Aslan had not been calling us, right? Um, Aslan gives this great promise to Lucy that um, you would not have called me if I had not called you. It's either Lucy or Jill, I forget. But Aslan is saying that I called you and therefore you called upon me. We love because he first loved us. And then Edmund takes it up and says, well, it's a bit uncomfortable to think that God can just summon us, right? That this magic of Aslan's, this Narnian magic can work on us without our choosing and without our consent. Doesn't that warp the notion of free will and free choice with this idea of a predestined plan from a sovereign God? And I believe Lewis is capable of um, simply 
placing that argument and that dilemma into the mouth of Lucy by having her say, but we want to be here if Aslan wants us. Where she's saying our greatest desire as creatures created by God with the image of God made to reflect and worship God, then our greatest desire is our greatest good. That uh, prior to the fall, prior to um, the entrance of sin that perverted uh, the order of our loves, the order of our affections got uh, misaligned. We got curved into ourselves rather than pouring out in praise of God. We started becoming uh, narcissists in our design where our, our affections were misordered. Um, prior to that, our greatest desire, what we longed for most, what we most wanted was the will of God. That Heidi White uh, talks about this on the Close Reads podcast, um, which you should take a listen to at some point. It's a fantastic um, podcast that Cersei puts out. But Heidi White talks about this uh, relationship between duty and desire that exists in the human soul, that in the garden was married, was fused together, that our duty and our desire were one, that our job as humans, what we were made to do was what we most desired to do. And there are therefore our duty and our desire, our virtue and our happiness were linked. They were one, but in the fall, our duty and desire got divorced from one another. They were torn uh, where we no longer desire our duty as creatures of a loving God, as creatures of an almighty God. We now uh, have our duty still is to worship God. We, the Imago Dei, is still part of our design, it, core, the core of our design. We are still, our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever still. That's still our duty, but now our desires are um, contrary to that. It's contrapuntal that there's a dissonance in our soul. We are divided souls where our desires are now for our own good rather than for our created good, our ultimate good. And so Edmund's question taps into that fundamental problem at our core that it's a bit uncomfortable to know that we can be whistled for, that we can be summoned against our desires. But Lucy says, don't we want to be here if Aslan wants us to be here? Shouldn't that be our greatest desire is to pursue Aslan's greatest desire? If Aslan wants us here, why would we choose anything else? And so it's this very, very powerful insight into a very complicated issue that I think gives the Christian reader a, a sense of navigation or a language to use to navigate the idea of choice and, and destiny, this notion of sovereignty and free will, that if in our making we were designed to worship God, that's our duty, certainly, but it also is our desire. We ought to desire our greatest good. The problem is we have redefined our greatest good to be our own comforts, which is what Edmund says. It's a bit uncomfortable. I don't like the idea of being summoned contrary to my choosing or my will. And so we return to the point I was beginning to make earlier, Trumpkin's misconceptions about the help that would come. He thought he was getting great uh, knights of old, these great powerful warriors, and he gets children. Now, of course, these children are powerful. Uh, they are capable. The Narnian air that they inhabit begins to work on them and to 
uh, quicken their skill and their hearts and their courage. But it reminds me of the misconceptions of Christ as well, that when Christ came, we thought we were getting another Caesar. We thought we were getting a mighty ruler. Remember how the Jews um, consider the Messiah's coming would be this great military um, reclaiming of Israel against Rome and that he would come with the sword. And yet he came as a servant. He came uh, in the meekness of a man. Um, and so I think there's a there's a lesson to be learned there about misconception and how the truth might arrive in a way that we never expected, that it might be it might transcend our paradigm, which is what the rest of this chapter explores, how Trumpkin in his sword fighting with Edmund, with his archery battle uh, contest with Susan, and then finally with his healing from Lucy, Trumpkin experiences these three phases of his expectations of what help would look like, what salvation ought to feel like and look like and appear like, um, he sees those expectations being upended and he eventually apologizes for it. By the end of the chapter, he is healed. He has a wound that's healed from Lucy and that's the final step of his humbling in this chapter. I think it's an important one where his physical healing denotes a sort of spiritual healing as well. Uh, Trumpkin is not yet at the place of confessing faith in Aslan. That has yet to happen, but we've seen his recognition of authority established in the last chapter. It's tested and uh, humbled in this chapter, and then in the future he's being prepared for ultimate faith when he sees Aslan um, in person. But at the end of the chapter when he's healed by Lucy, he says it's cured. It's as good as new. After that, he burst into a great laugh and said, well, I've made as big a fool of myself as ever a dwarf did. No offense, I hope. My humble duty to your majesty's all, humble duty. And thanks for my life, my cure, my breakfast, and my lesson. So this, again, is a, 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 a charming description of uh, Trumpkin's humbling. It wasn't a brutal humbling. It was a series of games where it was shown to him that his preconceived notions were uh, ill-placed. Um, and so he is let down rather easy. <laughs> but the healing there of the arm and the healing of his uh, attitude, his perspective is linked where he is being taught how to trust uh, in action, how to take his declarations of authority and live them out, even when they are uh, presented to him in a way he could not have predicted. And he thanks them for his lesson and he provides a, his humble duty. And he's forgiven. The children all said it was quite all right and not to mention it. And now, said Peter, if you've really decided to believe in us, and Trumpkin says, I have. Uh, so Lewis's um, unraveling in Trumpkin in this, in this short chapter where um, all we're seeing really is the preparation of the five of them to go and help Caspian. The, the transformation at work is within the heart of Trumpkin, where the movement is away from man's schemes, man's presuppositions, man's opinions, and replacing it with the humbling of belief in authority, belief in God, uh, trusting in Aslan. That happens with Trumpkin, where he... Um, is proven to have had his 
misconceptions um, shown to him and, and the error of his ways revealed to him. But it also works in Peter and Edmund, where the way things should go according to man's reason or the way things should go according to man's comforts and desires, both of which are um, are conquered by the reality of Aslan and his sovereignty in the magical land of Narnia, that uh, the summoning of the Pevensies and the power of the horn um, conquers, overrides Peter's inability to reason it out and Edmund's um, concerns over the discomfort it might create. And Lucy says, uh, the lesson to be learned here is to believe in the deeper magic beyond what we are able in our finite minds to articulate and believe in the deeper magic because it is what Aslan most desires for us. And therefore, it should be our duty to trust and our desire to obey. And so thank you for listening. Make sure to uh, tune in next time as we look at chapter nine of Prince Caspian titled What Lucy Saw.